and open it up to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 27 this morning. We are actually going to make it all the way. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Excuse me, it's on page 63. If you're using a pew Bible, that's available there for you. The title of the message that I want to bring you this morning is Faithfulness to the King. Faithfulness to the King. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible in front of you there and you open it up and you happen to do kind of a quick glance of the material that surrounds this passage, you'll notice that there's some headings on the top of those various verses. Chapter 19, verse 1 has one. Our verses beginning in verse 11 is another. Uh, We have another one in verse 28, and lastly, in verse 45 is yet another. And what we've crossed over in verses 1 through 10 a couple of weeks ago was, in fact, the last personal encounter that Jesus would have before he arrives in Jerusalem. This is what he has been determined to do since verse 51 of chapter 9. And what that encounter taught us was the fact that God and God alone can save the worst of sinners and change the most corrupt of hearts, namely by saving a chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. It is God and God alone who can make a camel go through the eye of a needle and make that which is impossible with man be possible with God, namely the salvation of a wretched sinner. And we find ourselves in the midst of that story as well, recognizing that we, before coming to Christ, are sinners through and through. We may not have been a rich extortionist like Zacchaeus, but perhaps we were like what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 tells us, a a fornicator, an idolater, or an adulterer, or so on and so forth. Those of us who have been saved by the grace of God recognize that we all could write a book entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, like that of John Bunyan. And I would imagine that if Zacchaeus was around in Bunyan's day, he would argue with Bunyan as to whether he should own that title. And so as we have crossed over that section, we begin to look at our next set of verses in verses 11 through 27. And one of the remarkable things that we find in this parable is that we're all in it as well. Every single one of us in this room is in this parable somewhere in that we are either the faithful servant of the nobleman or we are his enemy. And I want to ask you, before we get started this morning, where do you fall? Are you faithful to God, obeying His commandments and living for His honor and for His glory? Or are you in rebellion to God, living for yourself, never giving a second thought about the God who made you and created you in His image that you might glorify Him? Where do you fall this morning? Because you're either one or the other. And before the Lord Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, before we cross over into verse 28, and before he is delivered into the hands of sinful and wicked men, he wants to make this message abundantly clear by way of a parable, and that he is going to go away for a season, but on his sudden and unexpected return, will he find you faithfully waiting for him? Or he finds you to be his enemy. 
So I want us to read our text together and set it before your hearts and your minds as we begin to look at these verses. We're in Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Excuse me. God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word says this. While they were listening to these things... Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man." You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you, to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Let's pray. Our eternal Father, this is your holy word, and we need it to live more so than we need food, because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. May your word teach us and revive us, restore us and sanctify us, and even cause our hearts to rejoice. We pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that we may be trained in righteousness, equipped for every good work, and be conformed into the image of your beloved Son. It's in his blessed name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In God's economy, there are but just two types of people in the world. There are not three kinds of people or five kinds of people, or ten kinds of people in the world, but there are just but two. Here in the U.S., we may divide people up in any number of ways, between rich and poor or middle class, 
male or female or nowadays the not so sure. There's the educated and the uneducated. There's northerners and southerners or being from the west coast or the east coast. There's Republicans, Democrats, and independents. There's the athletic and the non-athletic or any myriad of external things by which we might compare ourselves. But in the all-seeing eye of the Lord, as revealed by His Word, there are just two. There are those that are blessed and those that are cursed. There are those that have been adopted into His holy family and those who are cut off. And there are those that have shown themselves to be faithful to Him and those who have proven themselves to be unfaithful to Him. And there are not many different destinations that you will arrive at the end of your life. You won't come back as your dog in your next life. You won't come back as a lion. You won't come back as your spirit animal, whatever in the world that is. And you won't inherit your own planet. But there are just two different destinations upon which we will all arrive based on the type of person that you are. And as we examine this portion of Scripture, the contrast between the two types of people and the two destinations could not be any more clear and stark than what we have before us. And the Lord makes this inevitably clear to us this morning by way of a parable. I want to work through this parable under three different headings. I want us to look at the context, the characters, and the conclusion. Now, first of all, we need to understand a bit of the context, because when we understand the context, we can understand why it is that Jesus told this parable. As I mentioned over and over again, these stories and these parables are not just some sort of random things that Luke recorded for us and strung together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they are purposefully and they are interconnected in so many ways. And so I want to give you a little bit of background about this parable to help us understand it a little bit. Now we recall that Jesus had just passed through Jericho in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 19, and it was a a lush city that looked good, it smelled good, it had many amenities that were built by the Romans. The weather was pleasant, and it was a city that you wanted to live or vacation to. Herod the Great had even built a vacation home there because of the climate and because of the the beauty that was in the city. But when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he left his reign into the hands of three people. His three sons named Philip, Herod, and Archelaus. Now the son who would have been given Judea, which included the cities of Jerusalem and Jericho, would have been Archelaus. Now, the people would have been very familiar with him because of his building and his engineering feats that he accomplished in Jericho. He had built himself there an elaborate palace. He was responsible for building the aqueducts that got the water carried throughout the city. He built a a massive hippodrome, which is essentially a horse racing stadium that sat thousands of people. And so the evidence of his rule would have been present everywhere people would go in Jericho. And so Archelaus, who was also mentioned in Matthew 2.22, was to rule over all of Judea. But in order to be proclaimed king, 
he had to go to Rome and have Caesar approve him as a king. However, before he was to embark on this trip and make this this trip, there was a demonstration by the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem. And they were mourning the killing of some of their religious leaders by Archelaus's recently deceased father, King Herod. And so when Archelaus sent a general accompanied by some soldiers to go and sort of stop the rebellion and quell the Jews, the Jews in turn stoned the soldiers and returned to their sacrifices as if nothing ever happened. Now, as you can imagine, Archelaus wasn't having none of this. And as the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And just like his father would have done, he ordered the Roman soldiers to invade the temple that day And as a result, 3,000 Jews were slaughtered. So in comparison to our political discourse, it's not quite that bad yet. But the people saw this and they, they grew to hate him. They despised him all the more because he was evil, wicked, and he was a murderous man. And not only that, to add a little salt to the wound, Archelaus sent heralds. And all throughout Jerusalem, announcing that the Passover feast was canceled. What God had told you to do, I'm telling you, no, it's done. So you can imagine how that sat with the Jews. Well, soon after Archelaus, he went on his way and he sailed to Rome to go get Caesar's approval for his kingship. But when he got there, he ran into two problems. One, he was opposed by another brother that was named Antipater, who was really kind of like the black sheep of the family, and he had been removed from his father Herod's will. He didn't inherit any land to rule over. And the second thing was, not only was his estranged brother there wanting that same kingship, asking for the same thing, but there was also a group of Jews who went on ahead of him and protested his killing of the 3,000 of their countrymen, and they opposed him as being king over them. And so because of all this resistance to Archelaus, Caesar would only grant him the title of ethnarch, or a ruler over an ethnic group, and not the title of king to which he would have had to earn in time. Caesar basically said to him, he said, you cannot be king until you have the favor of the people. As you can imagine, Archelaus never changed his ways, and he he was eventually disposed of and banished in 6 AD because he continued on with his cruelty. So we fast forward about 30 years later, and the slaughter of their brethren still would have been fresh history and then the memory of the Jews And Jesus then builds his story around a nobleman who went to a higher king to receive the right to rule his own people. Most of the citizens hated him and didn't want him to be king over them. He came back, he was granted rule over them, and he dealt with the people on the basis of how they had dealt with him. And since it's nearly the Passover, and since they are proceeding through Jericho and making the 17-mile trek down to Jerusalem, or rather up to Jerusalem, it was only natural for Jesus to use this as a backdrop for a parable. 
And so Jesus is not really commending or excusing Archelaus to the least degree, and he's no way comparing his character to that of Archelaus, but he is using Archelaus's going to Rome as an illustration to obtain a kingship like that of his own. Now remember, the parables are designed to take an earthly story so that we might understand a heavenly meaning, to take something familiar and to connect it with something unfamiliar. And so quite clearly, we can see that Jesus is the nobleman. He's the son of the king on high, who is about to receive a kingdom all of his own. He would travel to a far country to get it, passing through death and through the empty grave, before being crowned in the courts of heaven and eventually returning back to his people. And sadly, there will be many who will lodge their complaints and say of Jesus, we do not want this man to reign over us. But why would Jesus do this before he entered Jerusalem? Why would he tell him this parable now? Well, we see this in verse 11. If you look there, it says this. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And really right there is the key. They thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. The more they watched Jesus, they heard of the words of Jesus, the more they thought that Jesus was the one to come into Jerusalem and set up his kingdom. There was this heightened anticipation. A messianic expectancy was in the air, stronger than that of the roses of Jericho. And there was a fervency and expectation that the one who was healing the blind, casting out demons, saving sinners, preaching the kingdom of God, he was going to come to Jerusalem, he was going to set up his kingdom, and sort of have his political revolution all at the hands of Jesus of Nazareth. We can think of the sons of Zebedee, if you remember them from reading. They came to Jesus with the same sense of urgency in Mark chapter 10 when they come to him and they said, can we have the seats beside you in your kingdom, one on the right and one on the left? And so why did they ask him to have their seats reserved beside him? Because they thought it was going to happen immediately. And if Jesus was going to start assigning seats, they wanted to get their name in ahead of time. And so Jesus was constantly trying to point them away from these earthly and political concerns. And even if we were to fast forward through Luke and on into Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, and they're meeting together and they said this, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They could not shake it. They could not get it off their minds. And they thought it was going to come now. But the Bible tells us again and again that the kingdom is going to come suddenly, but nowhere does it tell us that it is coming immediately. That was the issue. And so Jesus tells them this parable to sort of subdue the crowd a a bit and tell them that there's going to be a bit of a delay in the setting up of this kingdom. So that's the the context, that's the backdrop, And, and so we start to be introduced to the characters In verse 12, we see it says this. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So we have the nobleman, and the word literally means there a high birth man, a man born of high reputation, a man of high status, of significant birth. And this certainly describes Jesus Christ, does it not? His birth was the noblest of all births, 
ever and that his father was God. And he's going away to a far country implies that there's going to be a little bit of a delay. And the reason he's going away is he is going away to receive a kingdom for himself. Unlike Archelaus, Jesus will receive that kingdom without hesitation, equivocation, or reluctance from the Father because it will be his good pleasure to do so. In Ephesians 1.20, it tells us that believers have access to the surpassing greatness of power which he brought about in Christ. And it says this, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the power that raised Christ from the dead is also the power that sat him down. And that immeasurable greatness of God's power towards believers is seen where God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us of Jesus that when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He's not standing at God's right hand as a servant or an attendant. He's not kneeling at God's right hand as a slave, but he is sitting at God's right hand as a son. In other words, the right hand of God is a biblical idiom for divine strength. It's a place of favor, and it's a place of majesty. And this is where Jesus is, seated, enthroned, in co-equal sovereignty with Almighty God. Paul further solidifies this rule and reign and, and the enthronement of Christ in Ephesians 1.21 when he says this, that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, I've done a Greek study of that word, all things, and it actually means all things, right? All things are in subjection under his feet. Feet. Philippians 2, 7 and 9 says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I surely, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Again, unlike Archelaus, who is trying to rule and reign over this little tiny portion of Israel, namely Judea, there are no borders, there are no boundaries, there is no place in the universe where Jesus Christ will not reign. And unlike Archelaus, who ended his rule in shame and dishonor, Jesus Christ will rule and reign eternally to the glory of God the Father. Then we see our, the slaves in verse 13. It says this, And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. Now, very quickly, a mina is about three months' wages. 
And a lot of people get hung up on this because they start to focus on the amount and they get hung up on the details and they lose sight of the big picture of the parable. But the focus should be on the nobleman's command and that they should do business with this mina until he returns. In other words, what he is charging these ten slaves with is that if you want to be known as a trustworthy servant, if you want to be rewarded as a trustworthy servant, if you have any respect for me, if you have any desire to honor me, and if you want to enter into the benefits that are going to accrue by your faithfulness, then make something of your opportunity that I'm going to give you. And how you handle this opportunity, this mina that I'm giving you, will ultimately show your attitude toward what you want for the future and toward the one who is a nobleman who gives you the privilege and the responsibility. This is a call to live a life that honors the absent nobleman, that respects him, that shows love to him, that makes the most out of the gifts and the privileges and the opportunities that they have been giving. It's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? I'm going to come back and I want, you to, I want to see what you've done. And it will indicate whether you've loved me, whether you honor me, whether you respect me, and whether you are trustworthy. This is what the nobleman is saying to these people. And in terms of your Christian life, This is the pinnacle of what it means for you to be a Christian. It is for you to love Jesus Christ. It is for you to cherish Jesus Christ. It is for you to serve Jesus Christ. It is for you to honor Christ. It is for you to labor for Jesus Christ. It is to take what He's giving you, in whatever spiritual gift he's given you, and you do business with it. You use it while he's away to bring him honor and glory. Romans 12, 6 tells us, he says, Paul says this, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, when you become a Christian, or you became a Christian rather, God has given you certain giftings for you to use in the building up of the body, which is his church. You don't stay at home and do internet church. You don't visit this church one week and this church a different week and you never plug into anything. But you do business with whatever grace and mercy Christ has granted to you as a gift and you do so faithfully until he returns. And so a very important question for you to ask and answer is this. What is my gifting? How am I employing it in serving Jesus Christ? How am I taking my mina and putting it to good and faithful use for my master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice in verse 14, it says, But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. That sounds a lot like Archelaus, doesn't it? 
But where it departs is in the fact that there is nothing in this parable to tell us why they hated the nobleman so much. They hate him for no reason. In John 15, 25, it says, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Now we can understand the Jews' attitude towards Archelaus and that it was pretty reasonable, right? He was cruel. He was a murderous ruler. But their attitude towards Jesus was blasphemous. The Jews of an earlier generation did not want Archelaus to reign over them, and he in turn slaughtered them, 3,000 of them. And yet the Jews of Jesus' generation didn't want him to reign over them. Though on the first day of the church when he sent the Holy Spirit, he gave 3,000 of them eternal life. They hated him without cause. They hated him without reason. They rejected him. We don't want him. So we move to the second coming of the king in verses 15 through 19. It says, when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Now, one thing we notice is that there is no boasting in either one of these two servants. They don't say, Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. They say, your mina has made ten. Your mina has made five. In other words, we recognize that whatever whatever it is that we have, whatever abilities we possess are gifts, and we're simply stewards. This is about living your Christian life as a trust. Taking the truth, the power of the Spirit, spiritual opportunities, spiritual gifts, spiritual privileges, everything that the Lord puts into your life, you maximize it for His honor and for His glory. Now, a lot of times you read this story, you lock in on the the issues of rewards, and you think that the big emphasis here is that somehow, if you do X, you get Y. You do good, you do really good, you get a lot more, and you do not quite so good, and maybe you get a little. So some commentators try to say, you know what, this is a picture of salvation by works, or it's a picture of salvation or of uh, rewards by works, or it's a picture of proportionate rewards. Remember, we don't want to get blinded by the details. The big picture here is very clear. Jesus, in speaking of the servants being given a task whereby they were to engage in business until their master comes, and the picture of rewarding them for doing business is all designed to point to one thing. And that is their faithfulness and their devotion to the king. They are to be about their king's business. They're not to live for themselves. They are to live for the the king and his kingdom. But we see the first uh, two slaves were faithful. They served him. They honored him. They showed reverence for him by obeying him. Then we go to the faithful to the false in verse 20. It says this, Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept, and I put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap 
what you did not sow. This guy has no desire to honor the nobleman. This guy didn't love the nobleman. He didn't obey the nobleman. He takes the mina, he sticks it away in a handkerchief. In other words, he's careless. According to the rabbis, this was a careless act to put something of great value into a handkerchief. So why did he put it in a handkerchief? He says this to him, I was afraid of you because you were an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So here is a person driven not by love, but by fear. Because he says, I'm afraid of you. I don't know. You're such a, you're such a hard person. You're really a tyrant. You're just a tough guy. Uh, so me knowing how hard you are, how strict and ungracious you are, I just put it in a handkerchief because I really don't like you anyway. Why? Because he essentially says this to him. You're a thief. That's what he says to the nobleman. You take up what you did not lay down. In other words, you steal. You reap what you did not sow. You take the crop, you steal the crop, you don't work to plant the crop. You're a thief. You've got all these people running around doing all your dirty work, and you take all the credit. This guy is slandering the nobleman. This is defamation. This is blasphemous. Now, the crazy thing is here is that there are some commentators who say, well, we're not sure if this guy is a true believer or not. I think it's pretty clear. He's making accusations against the high king of heaven. Because look how the nobleman reacts in verse 22. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And so what the nobleman is doing is simply questioning the legitimacy of his lame excuse. The truth of the matter is, the slave didn't care. He didn't care about the nobleman. He didn't care about the king. He didn't care whether the king thought he was a trustworthy or not. In his heart, when it was all really exposed and laid open to bear, he had no interest at all. He did what he did because he didn't care. The easiest thing to do was to stick it in a handkerchief and go on with his life. Maybe he had been a servant of the nobleman when it pleased him, when it seemed to serve his interest, and when it seemed to be a path of profitability or self-aggrandizement, and when it did what he wanted it to do, and when he was hanging around the other servants, maybe he was gaining a little favor that would come from them by his own pretense. But when it came down to it, he was basically driven by indifference. He didn't have any desire to please the nobleman at all. But what the nobleman is saying, he's saying to him, ironically, you think you know me? You think I'm an exacting man? Really? Maybe you should go talk to those other two slaves. Because look what he does with the other slaves in verse 24. He said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him. Give it to the one that's got ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he's got ten minas already. Verse 26, he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. In other words, this is outrageous grace. The faithful servants are receiving more and more and more. 
They're not only receiving a disproportionate reward to which no eye has seen nor ear has heard all that God has prepared for those who love Him, but they're getting more and more in this lifetime as well. You and I did not just simply receive just enough grace from God and then hopefully it will last, but we have received grace upon grace on top of grace and even more grace. Think about how many times that you didn't give a thought or a care to God this week. How many times did you fail to give thanks? How many times did we fail to proclaim the great name of Jesus Christ to this lost world? And we failed to do it. God has given us grace upon grace. There is never an endless supply of the grace of God. There is never a time now or in the future when the grace of Christ will diminish or run dry. It is endless, it is inexhaustible, and there is a limitless amount of grace. And what he is saying here, these faithful ones of mine, these obedience, uh, obedient ones, give them more. And the worthless slave, he's saying, strip him of everything. Every opportunity, privilege, position, mercy, so that he becomes an eternal waste and worthless. So here we meet the people who confess Christ. Maybe they connect to the church. They are surrounded by privileges and the truth of the gospel. They maybe make a profession. They serve their own purposes and their own ends. But in the end, they have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no love no desire to please Him with their lives. They don't care about the honor of the King. They don't love Him. They think He's harsh, demanding, unjust, unfair, and they'll be just like the oilless virgins, shut out of the kingdom forever when He returns. Finally, in verse 27, we see the conclusion. He says, But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This refers to the final judgment, and the damnation of God's enemies. Slay is a strong word. It means to cut them down, slay them completely. You can see echoes of Psalm 1 in this parable, and it talks about the blessed and the wicked. Of the wicked, it says in uh, verse 4, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assemblies of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I say, you're in this story. You're either among the faithful, longing to obey Him, longing to serve Christ, loving Him, seeking for opportunities to make much of Him in your life, or you're the false, and none of us is the nobleman. That belongs to the high king of heaven alone. But in any case, the Lord owns you. The king owns you because he is king of this world. He's the king of all humanity. And if you're hiding among the false, the day will come when you will be unmasked, your phony excuses will be unveiled and discounted, and you will be eternal waste, set, sent off to perish with the enemies of Christ. But those of you who have repented and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you doing business for the Master? Are you using the gift that Christ has given you and doing business with it as He has commanded? Our Master is going away for a while, but He will come back suddenly in royal 
triumph. And if he were to come back today, what would he find you doing for him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its simplicity, its clarity. It comes through so clearly. Lord, we just pray that as a church, we would be found faithful, that we would be laboring for you, that we would long to serve you and honor you, cherish you above all things in this world. Father, there's an innumerable amount of things that clamor for our attention, for our desires, for our time, and for our money. Help us to evaluate them and to look to see how we can use them to honor you and glorify you. Help us to not be like the world who has two dates alone on their minds, the date of their birth and the date of their death. But Lord, help us to look back to the cross and help us to look forward to your coming so that we might be found faithful. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.